we're going to be reading Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. As you may know, many who travel by aeroplane feel anxious, especially in turbulence. You know, when the plane is plunging and lurching around, And even the flight attendants have to suspend the in-flight service and strap themselves in. And even if we know that statistically it's safer to fly than to travel by car, it's hard to enjoy flying when the captain announces bumpy weather ahead. But I remember before the days of in-flight terrorism when nervous passengers could visit the cockpit to meet the flight crew. Because it's profoundly comforting to witness the calm professionalism of the pilots and the co-pilot, enabling nervous flyers to return to their seats confident in the crew who are flying the plane. Reassured, able to endure even a bumpy ride because they've met the crew flying the plane and feel safe in their hands. I say that because here in Psalm 145, we meet with Almighty God, if you like, in the cockpit of heaven. Here we see him calmly flying our world, including our lives. And it's hugely comforting to realize how awesome he is. How great. How gracious. How trustworthy. How righteous. Enabling us to return home to our lives after Keswick 
some of us to very painful and difficult situations, feeling safe in his hands. Even if life gets a bit bumpy in the turbulence of a failed exam or a bereavement or a redundancy or a cancer. Indeed, as meeting the pilot can help airline passengers actually enjoy their flight rather than simply gripping the arm wrists in in terror, so meeting God in Psalm 145 is so exciting. You can actually enjoy being a Christian. You know, the 17th century authors of the great Westminster Confession famously wrote, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And in his best-selling book, Desiring God, John Piper helpfully explains that means God created us to glorify him by enjoying him. For God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So we're going to study this psalm together to enjoy God. Not really to admire the psalmist. One pitiful commentary says, We cannot fail to be struck by the psalmist's skill, his breadth of vision, and the deceptive simplicity of his message. I'm not really interested in the psalmist. God's word is given so we can enjoy God. And he is marvellous. It's not that God is proud of himself or selfish for glory. We we know from Jesus that he's servant-hearted and cross-shaped. But knowing how prone to worry and anxiety we are, he's given us this psalm to reassure us, to comfort you and me as we go back to our lives. So let's beware of Sandemanianism. Do you know what that is? Robert Sanderman was an 18th century Scottish theologian who overreacted to some charismatic success of his day by claiming that saving faith is just intellectual. Bare belief in bare facts, he said. Thankfully, another theologian, Andrew Fuller, showed from the Bible how saving faith surrenders our wills and our affections to delight, to love the Saviour of whom the Scriptures speak. So we're going to read this psalm, to marvel and delight in God. And if Psalm 67 on Wednesday was challenging because it exposed our lack of evangelistic compassion, this psalm is deeply encouraging Because it celebrates how wonderful God is. Somebody said to me today, "Um, are you going to give us another good slapping like you did on Wednesday? (laughs) I said, no, I really want to be encouraging. So this is meant to be a cuddle. All right, a virtual cuddle, okay? You just think of that from, I'm trying to give you a cuddle. Because Psalm 145 is profoundly reassuring. Remember, we read the Old Testament as Jesus and his apostles did. We're not Israelites gathering in the temple to sing psalms. We're followers of Jesus who said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, John 5. So whatever the limited and imperfect motives of King David were when he wrote the song, the Holy Spirit has used him to write this beautiful Old Testament psalm with a deeper significance than David could know. A significance revealed for us in other Bible texts, especially the New Testament revelation of Jesus. So we'll read Psalm 145 in the light of its fulfillment in Christ, conscious that the great, gracious, trustworthy and righteous Lord of Psalm 145 is our Saviour Jesus. So let's begin. Psalm 145 calls us to praise the Lord in four dimensions. It begins, 
a psalm of praise of David. This is the last psalm in King David of Israel's final collection of eight psalms. So it's a climactic crescendo of praise, commending the Lord to us in the grandest terms. To everyone, everywhere, in every generation. In fact, the word all appears 17 times. Now the psalm is arranged as an acrostic. That is, each successive verse begins with each successive letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, an A to Z of reasons to praise the Lord. But if you're very smart, you might have noticed that there are only 21 verses. Because the main Hebrew text used by translators for many years was missing a verse for the letter Nun between verse 13 and 14. And the lost verse was confirmed for us by the Qumran scrolls and is now included as verse 13b. So it's all there, and each letter is there. Now this acrostic arrangement brings a sense of completeness, of clarity, of beauty, but above all it helps with memorising the psalm. Clearly God wants us to remember what you hear about him tonight. Okay, Try and remember this. The structure is simple. Verses 1 to 2, there's an introduction saying, I'm going to exalt you. Because, well, verses 3 to 7, the Lord is great in his mighty works. Then verse 8 to 13a, the Lord is gracious in his compassionate rule. Then verse 13b to 16, the Lord is trustworthy in providing for all. And then fourthly, verses 17 to 20, the Lord is righteous towards all who love him. Great, gracious, trustworthy, righteous. And then verse 21, conclusion, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. So God's glory in four dimensions. And you might like to know, theologians talk of God being simple, or perhaps a better word is maximally alive. In admiring these different attributes, we remember God is all of these qualities all of the time, even if we experience different aspects of his character in different seasons. So to illustrate, you, you might, for example, appreciate fire as warmth or light or destruction at different times of the year, but it's always fire. So Psalm 45 is like a prism, breaking up white light into its constituent colours, listing different aspects of God's glory. But God is always maximally alive in all these marvellous ways at the same time. So here we go. Verses 1 to 2, David erupts in praise. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I'll praise you and extol your name forever and ever. David was a great king. But he wants to praise God every day. Not just in theory, as being sovereign, but like Governor Nehemiah does, as my king. He's not just the king, he's my king. Personally worshipping God as his personal guide and the leader to whom he's accountable. In his reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. So in other words, admiring the amazing uh, England women's football team playing in the Euros final on Sunday will be no fun if you try and do it in silence. Honestly, don't do that. You want to be screaming and you want to be with friends so you can yell together. I mean, they're amazing, aren't they? We need to express our praise. 
A couple of weekends ago, I, I loved being with the Cornerstone Network of Churches in Liverpool. I don't know where any of, the, any of you guys are, are here, but they're friends of Jody, who's normally on stage here. And um, part of what, my time, there was a men's day. And the men were all Liverpool supporters, used to praising their team from the cop at the Enfield, at the Enfield Stadium. I, mean, I can't think why they would, but anyway, they did. They were all Liverpool supporters. And so, in church, they were roaring out their praises for God because they loved to worship their saviour together, even more than their football team. And honestly, they were all suddenly going, going mad for the Lord. And the, and the guy on the piano was leaping up and down, banging the piano. It was like they were in the cop, just screaming away for Mane or Salah, and instead they were praising the Lord. It was wonderful to be with them, because they were expressing their shared praise for their saviour. So David says he wants to publicly praise God's name, meaning his character, every day. And God has many names, but the one David uses ten times in this psalm is the Lord in capital letters. It's the word Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. This glorious and mysterious name, if you remember, was revealed to Moses, first at the flaming bush, where God explained, it's like I am who I am. And it emphasizes his absolute power and freedom to be whoever he wishes. I am who I am. It's as if to say, nobody tells me what to do. I am who I am, says God. He is free to be whoever he chooses, including the redeemer of his people. And then at Mount Sinai, in answer to Moses' plea to behold his glory, God reveals a bit more of this name when he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. And then he goes on, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It wasn't clear until the death of Jesus how God can be both merciful and just, but he is. And this name, Lord, is now bestowed on Jesus. Philippians says, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus is this Lord in four awesome dimensions. Number one, our Lord is great. He's great, especially in redeeming us. Verse 3 to 7. Verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Now, greatness is a general term for infinite excellence. It comes first because it summarizes everything that follows. Verse 3, his greatness no one can fathom. We'll never get to the bottom of God's greatness. We'll never run out of, of reasons to worship him. I understand the deepest part of the ocean is the Challenger Deep Gorge in the Great Mariana Trench in the northwest, northwest Pacific. Apparently, it's seven miles deep, which is a mile deeper than Mount Everest. And there is no submarine that can go deep enough without getting crushed. So it remains beyond us. Well, God's greatness is a billion times deeper than the Mariana Trench. You will never get bored of the Lord. So take your Bible on holiday this summer. And read him, because you're, you're in for such a treat. The psalmist decides to focus upon God's mighty works. Look at verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I'll meditate on your wonderful works. They'll tell of the power of your awesome works, and I'll proclaim your great deeds. So the psalmist is predicting that successive generations, it's wonderful to have young and old here this evening, will never tire of telling their children of what God has done. We're not expected to praise God for abstract philosophical ideas, but just look at the things he's done. I mean, think about his creation. His creation is mind-blowing. 
The Bible begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So using whatever big bang and microevolutionary processes scientists are now discovering, God spoke everything into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. And the text says, oh, and by the way, he also made the stars. Decorating the night sky with jewels to display his glory. Mathematicians reckon there are two trillion galaxies averaging 100 million stars, each with their planets and moons. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And they're just there to show us something of his glory. The search goes on amongst scientists for the theory of everything. You know, the 2014 film starring Eddie Redmayne about the physicist Stephen Hawking referring to the search for an all-encompassing theory. Well, while cosmologists wonder how God did it, we already know who and why. Our God did this to show us a little bit of his glory. Well, that's his creation. That's amazing. God's daily providence is even more mind-blowing. The forces of nature, weather systems, lightning and earthquakes, they're all the acts of God. The laws of nature are just his habits. Every tiny change in every molecule of every part of our restless universe, in every cell of your own body, is decided in every moment by the Lord. He daily provides our food, our clothing, our jobs. He restrains evil, steers our decisions. He governs world history. Relentlessly, as we've been learning in Ephesians, uniting all things under Christ. And we'll never know how many accidents and illnesses he has protected us from. See, we live life as if underneath a complex Turkish tapestry. We look up and all we can see is meaningless tangles of threads. But one day when we're in heaven, we'll look down on his work in our lives and see the beautiful artistry in working out working all things together to restore the image of his son in us. And we will surely exclaim with breathless excitement, oh, now I see. Now I understand why you let those things happen in my life. Now I understand why you gave me that family. and those. Now I get it. I didn't understand, but now I do. You're amazing, God. But supremely mind-blowing is God's redemption. Of course, the psalmist was reflecting upon the Lord redeeming Israel from slavery through the plagues, Passover, and Red Sea crossing to worship him at Mount Sinai and bring them into his earthly kingdom. But those redemptive works were a shadow, a model of what he has now done in the redemptive works of Jesus, who came as our king, died for our sins, rose to rule, and will return to judge and renew all things to the glory of God. God the Son shrank himself down in Jesus to become one of us. And it's so bizarre, Muslims think it's blasphemous. And atheists think it's crazy. Why would God become one of us? The answer is so they can swap places with us on the cross. So that he could be treated as if he was us and punished with all the shame and pain and hell that we deserve. So that we can be treated as if we're him, qualified and acceptable in heaven as righteous children of God. And all because, well, do you know why he did that? Because he loves you. And he loves me. Let me try and illustrate. You you may have heard of the extraordinary heroism of Bill Deacon, who's the winchman of an air-sea rescue helicopter operating out of Bristow in the Shetland Islands, northeast of the Scottish mainland. In November 1997... There was a cargo vessel, the Green Lily, grounded on rocks, breaking up amidst mountainous waves. 
The lifeboats were sent, but they couldn't get to the stricken vessel because of the height of the waves. So you can imagine storm gales, and there are a crew of 10 trapped on board, the ships breaking up. And hovering overhead, Bill Deacon realized the only hope of saving these men was for him to come down from the helicopter onto the ship. So he winched himself down in storm conditions onto the ship. And one by one, he attached each of the 10 crew to the winch. And they were raised up to safety in the helicopter in his place. But as the last two men were raised up to safety, Bill Deacon himself was swept off the ship with a mountainous wave. And his body was washed up on shore in the next day. He was posthumously awarded the George Medal for his courage and quiet right. That's amazing courage. So there are men living in the world today who know that they were saved by Bill on that day. Now Jesus has done that for you and me. He came down from heaven to swap places with you and me on that cross because he loves us. And that's why we love him too. The appropriate response is in verse 6 and 7. David says, I will meditate. I'll think about this. I will proclaim it. I'll tell everyone. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing. Our hearts bursting with joy for the awesome works of the Lord, for his creation, his providence, and above all, his redemption accomplished at the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, our Lord is great. But there's more. Secondly, our Lord is gracious in ruling over us. This is verses 8 to 13. Look at verse 8. Our Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. You probably know these words are the first half of the amplified name that the Lord revealed to Moses. It's presented nine times in the Old Testament. It's like God's signature card. Just think of each word, gracious means God is characteristically generous in giving us good gifts we don't deserve, supremely in giving us the righteous life of Christ to qualify us for the new creation. He's so gracious and he's compassionate, meaning he sees our pain, he sees our troubled hearts, he takes pity upon us in our need, he hears our crying, he sees our tears, tears and he is merciful when we fail him. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's endlessly patient, like a mother with her newborn. He never flares up or wallops us in rage. And while he does discipline us for our sin, he will never, ever punish us ever again. Because all that's been taken by Jesus. He's slow to anger. And he's rich in love. Meaning he's unceasingly overflowing with loving kindness. My wife and I had had the joy celebrating our uh, wedding anniversary and our 60th year's birthday. We went together for a real treat. We went to see the Victoria Falls in um, Zimbabwe. I don't know if you've ever seen them or some may have even been there. We went to see it. It's unbelievable, okay? I mean, the falls were about a mile long. They make the Niagara Falls look like a pond, you know? I mean, they're absolutely immense. And this torrent of water, the Zambezi River, flowing over the Victoria Falls is so loud. Okay, you stand in front of it, you can't hear yourself think it's... <laughs> And it's going like, <laughs> and you're laying over, and, you're, <laughs> and this goes on day and night and day and night and week after week and month after month. And I yelled at my wife, I don't know whether she heard me say, this is like God's love. And she just ignored me because she couldn't hear me. But I thought, think of ourselves, it's like we're standing underneath the, the Victoria Falls. <laughs> 
all the time. That is how the Lord feels about you and me. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The psalmist continues, verse 9, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. In Acts 14, Paul tells the unbelievers, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. He's constantly showering his blessings on the earth. And most of us have got so much to enjoy. I know life's hard as well, but he also gives us so much that's joy. Verse 10, all you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. That is the splendor of the Himalayas, the Pacific Ocean, the Amazon jungle, the Antarctic ice cap, the cities of Sao Paulo, Beijing and London. Everything that exists, as as we were hearing the other night, the the sharkiness of sharks, just the wonder of creation. Don't you ever look at anything and think, wow, look at that. It's that feeling of, wow, it's telling you something about how glorious God is. And in particular, says the psalmist, the citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Verse 11, they will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Verse 12, so that all men may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, which form the central proclamation, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your kingdom endures through all generations. Four times this word kingdom. The Lord is the king who governs us with amazing grace and deep compassion. And we see it most clearly when the king walked on earth forgiving traitors and prostitutes, welcoming children and foreigners, healing the lame and the blind, ruling as the king of grace. And supremely, Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I mentioned this the other night. Eleven times in the Gospels, only in the Gospels, we record Jesus' characteristic response to seeing crowds of people. A crowd like this. He was standing up here, he was sitting in front of you thinking, Oh my goodness, he would feel compassion. The word compassion used here is the word that means gut-wrenching compassion. It's like he's been punched in the stomach. Why? Because he can see that people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, stressed and burdened and desperately in need of Jesus. When Jesus looks at you in your life, including all the grime and the dirt and the secret stuff that nobody knows about, He looks at you with compassion and he thinks, I I know you need me. I am the good shepherd that you need. Our Lord is unbelievably gracious. And that's why he went to the cross to drink the cup of the acid of God's wrath deep down into his soul. I mean, that great goblet, can you think of it as a goblet of acid? The wrath of God. And he drained every drop deep down into his soul so that there is nothing left for you and me because he's so full of compassion towards us. He's unbelievably gracious. Thirdly, our Lord is trustworthy in providing for us. This is verses 13 to 16. This section is concerned with God's faithful covenant provision of all our needs. It has the kind of feel, actually, of what the Bible compares God to a loving and faithful husband. It's as if in the end none of us will miss out on the intimate joy of the perfect marriage made in heaven, that is to God in Christ. Now I realise that some of us, some of us may be currently happily married, 
Others of us unhappily married. Others of us are single, divorced, or widowed. But as the people of God, we're all betrothed to the perfectly loving and faithful Lord who will never, ever be unfaithful to us. Verse 14, the Lord is, unfa- is faithful, sorry. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The word here is about his unbreakable loyalty to his commitments. And in a culture where, where faithlessness is so common and faithfulness is, in, is rare, and many of us live with deep scars from the damaging unfaithfulness of other people, whether from a spouse or a boss or the government, people breaking their promises all the time. How wonderful that God is always and utterly and totally faithful to all his promises. Anything you can find he promises in the Bible, he will do it. He's never, ever broken a promise, and he never will. The psalmist gives three examples. Verse 14, reviving the hopeless. He says, the Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord allows us to stumble under pressure at work or to become bowed down with worry at home. So we learn to turn to him for his comfort and strength, and he will lift us up. When you pour out your heart in prayer, not just the first few distracted thoughts, but tell him about it. Lord, it's awful, it's terrible. You know, tell him everything till you've emptied it out upon him. He feeds the hungry, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them food at the proper time. Yes, God allows us to be in need so that we turn to him for our daily bread. Those who look to him are radiant, feeding the hungry. Satisfying the frustrated, verse 16. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. We're often overcome with discontent and disappointment, dissatisfaction, because we seek it in so many of the wrong places. In our teens, it's from trying to keep friends. In our 20s, from relationships. In our 30s, from children or a career. In our 40s, from the ideal home or holiday. In our 50s, from financial security. In our 60s and beyond, for retirement and respectability. And every stage, we're disappointed. I can't get no satisfaction. The psalmist has discovered satisfaction in the place that so many refuse to look. It's in the Lord. When you serve the Lord and trust in him, he satisfies your desires. Jesus says to him, says to us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus says, I'm the living bread for the hunger of your soul. I'm the living water for your spiritual thirst. I am the way for the lost, the truth for the confused, the life for the dying. I wonder if I might just address the teenagers who are here for a moment. Uh, My dad died um, a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic really got going. And I remember on his 80th birthday when he addressed his teenage grandchildren, there were lots of them in the room, and he said this to them. He said, I know the world is trying to drag you away from Jesus. He said, but I've been following Jesus since 1947, and I've never known a day when I've regretted that. And so I want to encourage you to trust him and to follow him every day for the rest of your life because he is utterly trustworthy and he will never, ever let you down. Fourthly and lastly, our Lord is righteous in caring for us. Verse 17. This section is concerned with God's holiness towards his people. Verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. There'll be no nasty surprises. He always behaves the way he says he will. 
Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He's not like that friend you can never get through to on your phone, who's always too busy and can't make it. You know, the one who just doesn't turn up? He's always there. You will find that the Lord is your best friend. He loves to hear your news any time of the day. I, don't, I mean, my daughter gets frustrated with me because I last about 15 seconds. She, she wants to tell me about what's been happening all day, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And after 15 seconds, she says, you, you've lost interest, haven't you? And I say, yeah, I'm so sorry, I have. And then she tries again. I really try and concentrate, but about 15 seconds later, the same thing happens. The Lord is not like that. The Lord never loses interest in what you have to say. The Lord watches over all who love him. The Lord watches over, verse 20, all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. What do you think the Lord is doing when you're busy at work, or you're writing an essay, or you're asleep at night, or exercising at the gym? The answer is he's watching over you. My daughter has just delivered our first grandchild, and she's spending all her time staring at this little baby, just staring at him, watching over him, watching every grimace and burp with unqualified devotion. And that's what the Lord is doing for us. He is watching over us all the time. Because Jesus always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7. Jesus is right now in heaven where we need him. Representing our needs to the Father. He's watching over us. And as you go home to your home, wherever that is, and to your life, whatever that holds when you go back, the Lord will go with you. And he will watch over everything that happens all the time. And he will be to you, this God, great, gracious, trustworthy, and righteous. He's marvelous. So how do we respond? David tells us. Praise him to the world in evangelism and to his face in song. Verse 21. He says, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. That is, tell other people about your Lord. Commend this Lord to those who are in need. It seems to me, as the gap between the lives of ordinary people and the ways of God in the Bible grows in the UK, we need to learn lessons, particularly from the biblical counselling movement, which I think is such a wonderful ministry, in how the Bible and the truths of God apply to people's ordinary lives. See, the conversation goes like that. You go out with a mate to a pub and you have a drink and... And you say, how are you doing? And so there's this thing at church. I'd love you to come along. You know I'm a Christian. And um, it's all about how God loves us and he's wonderful and and he's died for us on the cross. And and anyway, I'd love you to come and hear about him. And our friend says, oh, Richard, I'd love to, but truth truth is, my daughter's got anorexia at the moment and we're really struggling at home. And my wife and I, I honestly, I think think we're going to get divorced. The stress is so much. And, And my other children hate me and at work it's a nightmare. And I'm, look, when things improve, I'd love to come along to your church when things are a bit better. Uh, but I mean, just at the moment, I'm really struggling. And we say, oh, all right then. We'll wait till your life's a bit more sorted out. And, and then maybe you want to come along to church. Whereas you want to be saying is, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize that, but. I think I know someone who can help you with that. I know someone who's helped me with those things. And I think he could help you. 
Can I tell you about him? We need to commend this Lord who is great and gracious and trustworthy and righteous to people who need him in the mess of normal life. And then let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. In other words, to worship him, to pray and to sing and to live flat out for God. We need to tell him how we love him and we need to go home to serve him in our own ordinary little local church to do what we can in our local church to bring the good news of Jesus to a world that's desperately in need of him. You see, our Lord and Saviour is just marvellous. He's great and gracious and trustworthy and righteous and the world desperately needs him. And that's what we're here for. That's why God has delayed the end of the world and why we're not in heaven. So in the place where we live, in the street where we live, in the little local church that we go to, that we're there to tell people about this Lord and to enjoy him. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. In other words, enjoy him for the rest of your life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Let me give you a moment of quiet for just for you to speak to the Lord and to tell him how you love him and to thank him for being who he is. Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, you are marvellous and we do love you. Please forgive us that we have not loved you as we should. We want to love you more and we are so grateful that you are so great in your mighty works. You're so gracious towards us. You're so trustworthy in keeping all your promises. You're so righteous in how you treat us. Please open our minds to comprehend you more. Open our hearts to love you more. Open our lips to worship and praise you more. That we might find joy and satisfaction in knowing you. And that you might be glorified in the world. That others might come to know you for themselves. Please use us. Please give us opportunities to speak of what we've learned of you. Even tonight and this week. When we get home to our neighbours and our friends our family, those who don't yet know you. Lord, fill our hearts with joy in knowing you. For you are marvellous and we praise you. Amen.